Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Utah school board leaders request that Natalie Klein resign after she questioned a high school athlete's gender in a sense-deleted Facebook post. A report says that Cache County election officials falsified records and violated Utah election law. And proposed mining legislation could greenlight a quarry in Salt Lake City's backyard. Uh, Joining me today uh, will be education reporter uh, Carmen Nesbitt. We'll also have Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam and news columnist Robert Gerke. With me live right now, UPR and Tribune reporter Jacob Scholl. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Of course. Good morning, Tom. Thanks uh, for being with us. Uh, This week was an unusual week. We had some uh, big stories and uh, reporters who uh, couldn't join us live today, so I pre-recorded with two of them. Uh, yesterday. So yesterday afternoon, I was able to reach uh, Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Carmen Nesbitt uh, to talk about uh, Natalie Klein. The uh, Utah State School Board has requested that she resign uh, after this incident. And uh, so uh, here's my conversation with uh, Carmen from yesterday. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, and uh, right now we bring in Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Carmen Nesbitt. Uh, Carmen, uh, thanks for joining us. Of course, Tom. Uh, so this uh, the story has been um, all over the news, and of course, Tribune's been reporting on this extensively. Utah uh, State School Board member Natalie Klein got in hot water for uh, for action. Well, maybe let's start there. What uh, what did she do recently that's uh, got her in hot water? Yeah. So last week she posted uh, on her Facebook. Uh, a flyer of a high school girls basketball team, which featured the faces of a few of those players. And the post basically questioned one of those athletes gender. Uh, and it, it kind of caused this social media hailstorm. Um, and her, some of her followers began you know, harassing the student, uh, personally identifying the student. And it got to the point where um, the Granite School District had to provide <laughs> extra security and protections for the students. Um, but kind of at the core of it, her, her post implied that the student was transgender, which turned out to be false. The student was not transgender. And um, she has since deleted the post and apologized. But that didn't, you know, stop, you know, what happened from happening. So yeah, that's, that's uh, I, what started all of this. Okay, yeah, <laughs> this was a social media post, um, and I guess you know, either way, this would be bad. It turns out this this uh, high school athlete was not uh, transgender, but uh, uh, Natalie Klein's, I guess, followers, uh, those interested, um, t- tell me a little bit about, about what they they posted. It, were there threats? What what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact, like, I couldn't quote you anything, but they were they were threats, they were derogatory in nature, they were offensive, um, and, and, and most importantly, right, this is a minor student, uh, and I think most egregiously, what ended up happening is she was identified, personally identified, and, and that resulted in, in not only her, but her family being, being targeted personally, so... And there had to be uh, security brought in, I think? 
Yeah, I believe so. That's um, Courtney, Cl- or Courtney, Courtney Tanner did a story on, on uh, broke this story, essentially, um, and spoke with, with Granite School District leaders, and, and that's what they said, um, that they heightened security. Yeah. Uh, so now, um, just I think this was Wednesday, the Utah State School Board, I guess uh, all the other members, uh, Natalie Klein was not present. What What action did they take? Yeah, so this is the latest, uh, you know, event in, in this entire story. Yesterday, uh, uh, Utah State Board of Education did uh, issue what's called a censure, which is basically a, a formal formal statement um, condemning Natalie Klein's actions and asking her to resign immediately. And this is the first time, according to USB officials that I've, I've spoken to, that, that the board has ever had to take this action against one of its own board members. The, um, they also um, kind of <laughs> limited her powers, right, as a board member. So if she does not resign, she cannot add items to agendas. She can't um, uh, participate or hold any titles in any committees. And she also cannot attend advisory advisory committee. So it significantly limits what she can actually do on the board. What did, did the board say anything in, uh, to accompany their decision, um, I guess, about uh, Natalie Klein's actions? Yeah, board chair James Moss uh, said he, he expressed his, his concern for the student um, and, and his and the board's desire to protect all students from public shame. Uh, and acknowledge that the, that Natalie Klein's post was was put in context and in a forum where it was pretty clear that they that it would invite scrutiny and shame. Uh, but the meeting itself and and the bulk of the discussion was held in an executive session, uh, which is also like a private session, and that's not uncommon for governing bodies to do when they're discussing personnel. Um, so they were in that meeting for about three hours before coming out and showing the resolution and taking a vote on that resolution. You wrote the Utah Media Coalition uh, sent a letter uh, urging the board to deliberate in public. That didn't happen, apparently. It did not happen. It did not. But uh, the letter was essentially saying this is, this is a public matter. Natalie Klein brought this on herself. Uh, and... You know, in keeping, um, you know, transparency and trust with the public, you should have, you should conduct this entire meeting publicly. But they chose not to. So these disciplinary measures, I understand, will remain in effect uh, through the end of the year, which is essentially pretty close to the end of Natalie Klein's term. Uh, She apparently is running for re-election, is she? She is. She is. Um. So what is she saying uh, about this action? So prior to the board's meeting yesterday, she put uh, she posted two Facebook posts, both of them uh, having screenshots or photos of emails and letters that she had sent the USBE. And first, in, in the earlier post, she said that, um, the USBE needs to question whether or not any disciplinary action taken against her amounts to election interference. 
And she cited rules pertaining to Utah's uh, Independent Executive Branch uh, Ethics Commission. And that particular rule bars people from filing complaints within 60 days of a primary or general election. Um, But that commission has jurisdiction over the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, state auditor, and the state treasurer, but not state board members. So... Basically, she was kind of citing this rule that that doesn't apply to her as a Utah State board member. Um, so um, she did meet with uh, privately with House Speaker Mike Schultz. Do we know anything about uh, the result of that meeting? Yeah, they did. Uh, reporter Brian Schott uh, broke that story, um, and honestly, it's not super clear exactly what they discussed. Now, some have uh, broached impeachment. Of course, that would only be the legislature. Uh, I guess it's still up in the air what the legislature might do, if anything, on this, right? Correct. But yesterday, they did move to vote on a, a resolution that would censor Natalie Klein. Uh, censor resolution. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so there is movement in the, in the legislature on this. So various local uh, school districts have been issuing, uh, what, condemnations, uh, calls for Natalie Klein to immediately resign? Correct. Granite School District uh, was the first to do so, and Canyon School District and Jordan School District also followed suit, basically adopted the same um, statement that that Granite School District adopted, uh, calling on her to resign and condemning her her actions. Midville City Council, as well as Salt Lake City Council, have 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 issued uh, resolutions calling on her to resign as well. Uh, and again, I guess the latest from Natalie Klein herself is um, this accusation that the the board's actions could amount to election interference. Uh, sounds like she's going ahead with a re-election campaign. Yeah, we're not we're not ex- entirely sure yet. Uh, USBE officials, uh, I reached out to them, and and they haven't received any communication from Natalie Klein, one way or the other. Uh, and uh, if she does decide to resign or whatever she decides to do, uh, USBE officials basically said that communication will likely come from her rather than the the board. So, you know, as of right now, it's kind of up in the air as to what's going to happen. Uh, anything else to, to say on this, uh, this case? You know, it's just been, it's just been a, a wild ride. And, and I have to kind of offer some, some accolades to my, uh, my newsroom. It's, it's been a, a team lift. There's been so many moving parts, and I'm certainly not, you know, the only one to to have reported on this. And just, it's really been a team effort. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good reporting. Uh, SLTrib.com to find those. That's my recorded interview uh, from yesterday with education reporter uh, Carmen Esbitt. Uh Robert Gerke, news columnist, uh, joins me now. Um, so, Robert, before you comment on this, uh, maybe keep your reporter hat on. Uh, uh, give us uh, some uh, some of the latest details from various other of your colleagues. Uh, Emily Anderson Stern had a story this morning about the legislature censuring uh, Natalie Klein. What uh, what else can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, so both the House and the Senate yesterday uh, passed this resolution that 
condemned and censured uh, Natalie's comments. Uh, it passed uh, with two no votes in the House. Uh, it passed unanimously in the Senate, went to the governor, who I believe signed it last night. Um, so the the impact of this in a practical sense is kind of marginal because, as Carmen was mentioning, the state school board has already stripped her of some of her privileges as a, as a school board member. So, uh, and, and this, obviously, the censure resolution stops well short of the impeachment uh, action that had been on the table. Um, there were some members who expressed yesterday that they were disappointed that the, that the legislature didn't go farther than they did. Um, but uh, now, you know, now the legislature's on the record, as, as Carmen mentioned, along with the school board. Uh, and and in condemning these uh, these actions by Natalie, uh, the according to Emily's story, uh, the family of this student wanted impeachment. They didn't get that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that was something that uh, Speaker Schultz was in his news conference yesterday was kept saying that the uh, the family just wanted a censure, but no, the family definitely wanted a resignation or impeachment. Um, you know, we it remains to be seen, I guess, potentially if we'll get a resignation from Natalie. I, I, I am kind of of the opinion, as you saw in the uh, in the statement that she released, that she's fairly defiant in her uh, unwillingness to do that. So I'm not anticipating that that's the direction she's going to go. But yeah, the family of the family of the girl has been saying since the outset, frankly, that they wanted a resignation, and I think recognizing that the resignation has not been forthcoming. Uh, wanted to see somebody move toward impeachment, but uh, obviously not going to get there. Um, it, it's it's kind of hard to say for sure. I mean, if they would have been able to get the votes, you know, and it would have been a longer process, uh, I think that maybe there was just sort of a, a, an unwillingness to, at this late stage of the legislative session, to sort of venture down that impeachment path. I uh, just want to point out, uh, Carmen Esmond had a story this morning um, kind of making clear what the Utah State Board of Education censure uh, resolution said. They, they made it clear that they believe that Natalie Klein cyberbullied and sexually harassed this student. Also, uh, Brian Schott's story uh, this morning um, uh, quotes Natalie Klein as sending a message to Republican leaders in the legislature that she will not resign and will continue to run for, for re-election. Uh, so, Robert Gerke, put this in context for us. What do, what do you think about this whole this whole thing? I mean, I think, uh, you know, certainly the, the legislature has the power to impeach Natalie Klein. Um, I think there was probably a will among the majority of the body to do it, but an unwillingness among leadership to go that route. And, you know, there, there was a chance for the legislature more than more than anybody else to actually hold her accountable for what she did. And if they actually believed what she did was wrong, they had the tools and the leverage at their, their hands to, uh, to actually, you know, make this, make this punishment stick. And they, they chickened out. I mean, it, it, there was uh, just not the stomach taking among uh, leadership, particularly from what I'm hearing uh, members in the house, to uh, follow through on on uh, the appropriate punishment, and so, you know, uh, I, I guess there is this uh, Republican primary coming up. Uh, voters can ultimately hold her accountable as well uh, if they think that what she did was wrong. But that's going to be again not for not for a few months, and, and she'll be a board member until then. 
All right, before we go to break, uh, I want to bring just in another couple of minutes from my conversation with Carmen Esbitt, again, recorded yesterday. We talked about another measure at the legislature that Carmen's been uh, been following. Let's let's hear this. Uh, Courtney, just before I let you go, um, I wonder if we could just uh, spend a minute or two on another story you had uh, just this week. Um, another bill. Uh, the headline is, in Utah schools, the Ten Commandments could be used in U.S. history courses under an updated bill. So this is uh, Representative Michael Peterson's, uh, what is it, House Bill 269. Um, mm-hmm. What what would this do? Basically, it would allow uh, teachers to include the Ten Commandments and the Magna Carta in a list of historical documents that they can teach in history classes. And it wouldn't require them to do so, but it would allow them to do so. And... Representative Peterson basically made his case before members of the House Committee um, on Tuesday that the Ten Commandments is, you know, although it is a religious document, it has a, quote, undeniable place in U.S. in U.S. history. Uh, I should note that Representative Peterson is Republican from North Logan. Uh, in your uh, story, you quote uh, Carol uh, Spackman Moss, Representative, uh, Democratic Representative from Holiday. I'll just quote from the story. Uh, while she's religious and reveres the Ten Commandments, she's concerned that non-religious students would feel uncomfortable, especially with the first four commandments, which instruct people how to worship the Judeo-Christian God. I guess there are, there is some opposition to this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, there is definitely an argument to be made that the, the our founding fathers were definitely, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments in mind, when, you know, formulating the, the Constitution for our country. Um, but to uh, Stackman's point, um, the first four are, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make idols, you shall not take the Lord uh, your God, the name of the Lord your God in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, and those are just, those are very, you know, religious, you know, centered. Um, and, you know, the bill, too, is, is coming amid a separate proposal that would prohibit teachers from displaying pride flags or any other symbol perceived as endorsing political or religious viewpoints at school. So, <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how this does, this bill. Uh, thanks for telling us about this as well. Uh, we've been talking with Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Carmen Nesbitt. Uh, Carmen, thanks so much. Thank you. That's Salt Lake Tribune education reporter Carmen Nesbitt. Uh, Robert, what do you think about the about that bill? Well, I think the the irony of this one is, as Carmen noted at the end, that they're, the the legislature is trying to restrict what uh, political or religious, uh, what other political or religious uh, displays that teachers can have, uh, while you know making this one, uh, you know, treating this one differently. So. Uh, you know, this bill is better than it started out being. It used to be originally was required to display these in schools, and uh, the sponsors backed off of that. But, you know, it's the, the entire notion. Yes, the yes, the Ten Commandments are important to a Judeo-Christian country, but not everybody in this country is Judeo-Christian. And it just it strikes me as uh, hypocritical, I guess, when you're talking about banning certain thoughts and ideas in classrooms and promoting others. Um, but, you know, that's sort of the direction this legislature has been eager to go time and again this session. So uh, it's not too surprising in that respect. 
Let's head toward a break. Uh, we are you're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. And uh, after the break, we'll be talking with UPR and Tribune reporter Jacob Scholl. Um, the headline is this: A report says that Cache County election officials falsified records and violated Utah election law. We'll have that following this break. Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to UPR and Tribune reporter Jacob Scholl. Uh, Jacob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for being with us. Uh, so, Jacob, uh, this is big news for uh, Cache Valley. Um, just the, the first line here, a review of Cache County Clerk's Office's handling of the county's 2023 general municipal election resulted in deeply troubling findings. These are findings from the lieutenant governor's office, right? They're the the chief elections officers in the state. Um, how did this make it to the to the lieutenant governor's office? What what were the what was the red flag? Yeah. So essentially, after the uh, November elections, um, the lieutenant governor's office started to raise some eyebrows just with um, some of the uh, materials that the, that the uh, Cache County Clerk's Office had sent over to them. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, that's that was kind of the precipice of, you know, this report. Um, ultimately, the um, Lieutenant Governor's Office, multiple people within Lieutenant Governor's Office uh, actually went to uh, Cache County on December 5th to basically do an in-person review and so you know they started looking through documents and they uh started examining um election procedures and you know the more that they kept digging the more issues they kept finding and so that kind of uh i would say that really all that ultimately led to uh uh, this this report that was uh presented earlier this week uh, so this, and, and you have that report up on sltrib.com, right? People can read it. What, uh, what are the highlights there? What, what are the, what were the problems they uncovered? Well, so the big thing was, um, so every county, uh, election office, you know, every county election office is through the county clerk's office. Uh, but one of the biggest red flags that the state found was, um, regarding a type of uh, test. It's called a logic and accuracy test. It's um, that's essentially uh, an audit of elections equipment um, that a county has before the election just to make sure everything is running properly. Everything, you know, is is doing what it needs to. Um, and one of the, the biggest issues that this report found is that um, when state officials kept pressing uh, the Cache County Clerk's Office for records related to the logic and accuracy test. Um, you know, they kind of didn't really get answers. Document from the County Clerk's Office, they found that it was uh, it had been falsified, um, which is you know uh, no <laughs> you know that's no no small allegation. Um, and so you know that's one of the the big things um in total the office uh, the lieutenant governor's office found 31 separate issues with uh how the county ran elections last year not only in not only in the general election but also in the primaries um and yeah it really just kind of runs the gamut from um you know they didn't fill out this paperwork as they should uh you know ranges from you know smaller 
issues like that all the way to, you know, improperly um, maintaining chain of custody for uh, for ballots or, like I said, the falsified document. Um, uh, and yeah, there's just a, a number of issues outlined in the report. Do we know if the outcome of the elections were changed? So were, were there any problems that way or just a problem with the process? Just a problem with the process. So uh, earlier this week, uh, it would have been on Tuesday afternoon, Ryan Cowley, uh, who's the state's uh, director of elections within the lieutenant governor's office, um, he addressed the Cache County Council and basically walked them through every aspect of this report. Uh, I bring that up because he said a couple times during his talk that uh, there was no evidence of fraud or you know manipulated elections or um, you know any really the state found no evidence there was any um, they found no evidence that elections were altered in any way or that the election results were different than what they were supposed to do which is you know kind of the silver lining out of out of all this. Uh, but I guess in a, a reading from your story, significant and reading from the report, significant problems, including poor chain of custody practices that could have introduced numerous opportunities for bad actors to impact the election results. So the the the, the lack of good process left uh, this this election open to being manipulated. Uh, just, you know, thankfully it wasn't. Right, right. Yeah, there are definitely opportunities, um, the opportunities to introduce those kind of problems. But thankfully, you know, despite all these uh, 31 issues found, you know, the lieutenant governor's office found no evidence that, you know, the election was altered or, you know, changed in any way. So I just want to emphasize one uh, point here. I guess the old, uh, the old adage, the old wisdom, uh, it's the cover-up that gets you, right? Uh, in this case, bad process. But I guess somebody from the Cash County clerk's office uh knowing that they should have done this this test uh basically lied and said yeah we did it yeah yeah and um and and ryan cowley when he addressed the cash county council he he really um he like i said walked the council through all this and really it was uh judging from the information that the lieutenant governor's office had it was actually fairly easy for them to figure this out um, really one of the, the other big issues is two of the, uh, real, two of the ballots for, uh, cities in, in Cache County it would have been Paradise and Amalga. Um, they had a handful of problems before. Um, and it's, and I bring that up because essentially, um, with those problems being known and they were corrected, uh, right before the, uh, general election. Um, but because those issues were known, um, the te- the logic and accuracy test that was uh, turned into the lieutenant governor's office had those corrections on there, uh, but the date on which you know the the date on the logic and accuracy test was uh, from you know a week or two before the problems were even discovered. So I mean, you know, I I would certainly agree that this is definitely an instance where the cover up is is worse than the crime, um, and you know and. Uh, and also afterward, uh, after the election, you know, uh, two county elections employees were placed on administrative leave. Um, and then uh, Cash County Clerk Auditor David Benson also placed himself on leave um, as the as uh, an investigation continued. And I, you know, I think it's you can definitely kind of put two and two together here and, um, you know, think about how the 
uh, investigation uh, with the three being placed on administrative leave and the findings in the report, you know, are, are very likely going to be linked. But, you know, we'll know that for sure as as time goes on. Now, the uh, Cache County Clerk, David Benson, uh, he spoke during that meeting, according to your story. He says they have addressed many of these issues uh, by this point. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, County Clerk Auditor David Benson was was there for the meeting and, you know, listened to the Lieutenant Governor's Office, um, uh, you know, the presentation from the Lieutenant Governor's Office, and then he offered a response right afterward. Um, and, yeah, he said that the... Uh, County Clerk's Office has already addressed and fixed 27 of the 31 issues. Um, and one of the questions that a, a council member had, I believe it was Nolan Gunnell, um, asked about, you know, what about these other four? And uh, David Benson also, you know, laid out, hey, here's the timeline for these other four um, issues addressed in the report. And, um, you know, at least according to what he said earlier this week, uh, those four issues should be resolved before the end of the month, at least that according to the timeline that he gave. In uh, the meantime, very briefly, Jacob, um, the, uh, I don't know if this precipitated uh, the, the following, but uh, uh, Cache County has decided to uh, divide the responsibilities, separate offices again, right? Auditor and clerk? Yeah, this is a decision made earlier this year. They're going to okay. split the um, the county clerk and auditor positions uh, into two separate offices, um, and um, you know uh, voters will have the opportunity to uh, vote for each of those offices for the twenty you know uh, the election this fall, uh, and then you know those uh, candidates will be sworn in next January. And I should also note that uh, you know, county clerk auditor David Benson did not uh, sign up to to run for re-election for either of those positions. So it would be two, two uh, presumably new new faces uh, on uh, in, in Cache County leadership, you know, next uh, next January. All right. Well, thank you, uh, UPR and uh, Tribune reporter Jacob Scholl, uh, telling us about this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Robert Gerke, what do you think about this one? Um, I mean, this probably isn't a super hot take, but the clerk's the clerk's primary responsibility, the most important job that any clerk has, is running the election. And when we have so many people who want to cast doubt on the veracity and and, and uh, you know accuracy of our election processes, it's just so much more critical that they do this job well. Um, I mean, I think maybe the lieutenant governor's office needs to look at the training regimen. I know they do training for uh, county clerks. Obviously, it didn't work in this case. Uh, but this is this is a severe this is a serious problem, and uh, I think it's good that they found it. I mean, maybe that's the, the silver lining out of all of this is that it was detected by the people who are supposed to be, you know, making sure that these elections are done right. But as I as I said, you know, especially in this sort of fraught political time, where so many people are so quick to you know call into question the authenticity and accuracy of our elections. It's just, it's critical that we not have problems like this. And so uh, hopefully there will be some steps taken to make sure that in the future uh, we don't have a repeat of this in other counties. We've had, we've had issues with county elections before, uh, you know, particularly Utah County seems to have a lot of problems for a period of time. But, um, you know, this one, that when they start falsifying uh, uh, accuracy checks and things like that, it's, it's kind of goes to another level. So uh, it's unfortunate. I'm glad they found it. And, and it sounds like corrective action is underway. 
uh, and if nothing else, then Clerk maybe will help solve the problem as well. Well, we'll go to break here soon, uh, but my uh, our last interview with Anastasia Huffam um, about mining up of Parley's Canyon uh, is recorded yesterday. So we'll do our underplay stories of the week uh, now, so we can let you, gentlemen, go on to other things after after this. So, Jacob Scholl, what's your underplayed uh, story of the week? Uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, a story that actually came out yesterday from our Tribune colleague, uh, Julie Jag. Um, it really just lays out kind of uh, what exactly happened with the whole uh, lawsuit between Wasatch Peaks Ranch, which, which is a, a very exclusive, um, essentially uh, Yellowstone Club-like uh, development out in Morgan County. Uh, this the story really just goes through um, what exactly preceded a lawsuit being dropped between um, Wasatch Peaks Ranch and Morgan County residents. I, I just found it really fascinating, especially the fact that um, you know, Julie had to kind of work around the fact that, um, you know, there were, uh, uh, agreements signed out of court and there was uh, information that would not readily be publicly available, but I think she did a really good job of, uh, putting this all together and making it a uh, very digestible and interesting to read. All right. SLTrib.com to find that. Robert Gerke, what's your underplayed story of the week? Uh, yeah, I'm going to highlight one that Tim Fitzpatrick did. Um, and this deals with this ongoing back and forth over how much rooftop solar customers are going to get paid for this uh, solar power that they sell back onto the grid. Uh, over the last roughly a decade, really, um, the, the Public Service Commission has sort of steadily chipped away at how much uh, people could recoup on those solar panels. Now, Senator Wayne Harper has a bill that would uh, increase that amount um, and, and make it more lucrative for the people who have rooftop solar on their, on their rooftops. And um, so we'll watch this bill in the last two weeks of the session, last, uh, what, what do we have left, 18 days, um, to see if it can get across the finish line. It would be a significant change for, for those customers who, who put up the money to install those solar panels. And so there, for, for them, at least, there's quite a bit riding on it. All right, sltrib.com for that one. Well, thanks, gentlemen. UPR and Tribune reporter Jacob Scholl and uh, news columnist Robert Gerke have been with me live and earlier in the program recorded conversation with Carmen Nesbitt. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, Anastasia Huffam. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, Week the News Roundup, Utah Public Radio and Salt Lake Tribune. More following this. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. And we bring in uh, this part of the program, uh, Salt Lake Tribune Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam. Anastasia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you taking some time here. Uh, so we want to talk about uh, this story. The headline is, the most alarming bill I've ever seen. Proposed mining legislation could greenlight a quarry in Salt Lake City's uh, backyard. Um, so that, that quote, most alarming bill I've ever seen comes from Brian Mensch, right? Uh, who's with physicians for a healthy, healthy environment. Uh, so this is Senate bill 172. What would this do? 
This is a pretty sweeping mining bill. It would do a few different things. Um, kind of first and foremost, it would make it easier for landowners to open mines and gravel pits on their lands. Basically just expands what it means to have a mining right. Um, it also reduces local and state oversight of those operations. The bill says that local governments and state agencies can't make you know, pass local ordinances that, quote, unreasonably restrict, unquote, mining operations. Um, and it also makes mining operations more difficult to challenge in court. Um, anyone, you know, whether that be a state entity, whether that be a local government, or, you know, even a concerned citizen wants to challenge whether or not a landowner has a mining right or whether, you know, a mine should be happening maybe near where they live. Um would, you know, need to challenge that in court. And if they lose, they would have to foot the bill for um, the mining operator, the mine operator, um, if they do lose that challenge in court. So it's a pretty sweeping bill and would basically make mining uh, mining operations a lot easier um, to open and operate throughout Utah. Dr. Mench uh, and others are saying this bill seems to be, uh, you know, besides potential consequences broadly, seems to be uh, targeting, enabling a specific operation up Parley's Canyon. Tell me about uh, about a proposed quarry there. Absolutely. So um, many people who live, you know, on the eastern side of Salt Lake City have heard about this. So this um, mining proposal uh, was proposed in November of 2021, basically for these two um, mining projects in Parley's Canyon, which is, you know, um, kind of, it's in the Wasatch, it's in the foothills. And once a lot of citizens heard about it, there was a lot of, there were a lot of concerns about air quality, about, you know, if there's this big limestone quarry um, in the in the middle of uh, this canyon that shoots, you know, all the way down to Salt Lake City. Um, there's a lot of dust. There's a lot of, um, you know, air quality concerns, you know, would that just basically um, make the air a lot harder to breathe in the east side of the city? So um, this, there's been a lot of back and forth over whether or not this limestone quarry that everyone is concerned about will be built. Um, currently, it is wrapped up in court um, because Salt Lake County passed an ordinance uh, basically restricting and prohibiting any, any new mines in the Wasatch Foothills in April of 2022. Um, the, mining, the mine operator, or who would be the mine operator, um, Tree Farm LLC, uh, sued the county um, over that ordinance. Um, that's still kind of pending, making its way through the courts. Um, and the idea here is that SB 172, that big sweeping mining bill we were talking about, um, basically would kind of legislate that judicial outcome is what um, some critics told me. I talked to some folks at Save Our Canyons, which is a nonprofit that is has you know really vocally opposed this proposed quarry and basically says that you know, this bill would make it make it so, you know, the ordinance wouldn't really matter anymore. And that if there ever was mining, you know, where the quarry is proposed to be, which there has been in the past, that mining could happen there again. Um, so their argument is that this bill could basically legislate the outcome that's kind of uh, stopping the proposed quarry in court right now. Is uh, Senator Hinkins the sponsor he, he's talking? You'd be able to reach him? He actually, he was not, um, he was not speaking about it. He, um, I've reached through some um, folks at the Senate trying to get a, get a hold of him. 
Um, and he said he did not want to talk about the bill yet. He It was originally assigned to the Senate Economic Development Committee, of which Senator Higgins is chair. Um, and then it was sent back to Senate rules. But I got, you know, I actually just saw this morning that the bill has a new sponsor. Um, it's Senator Curtis Bramble. Um, he is a Republican from Provo. Uh, so that seems to, that's, you know, <laughs> that's not even in the article. I just found that out um, this morning. Um, and the bill still does not have a House sponsor. So it would be introduced in the Senate if it is introduced. You know, we only have two weeks left of Utah's very short legislative session. So that remains to be seen. But uh, yeah, there's an update for you there. <laughs> oh, interesting. I don't know if that's unusual or not to hand one sponsor to hand it off to another. Yeah, I think it's it's also just I think what's really notable is that it is kind of late in, in the legislative session and there's still no floor sponsor. And this is a really long and um, if you you know get a chance to look at the bill text, it's a really long and convoluted bill. So I imagine it would take some time to work through um, the legislature. So, you know, we'll see. I'll definitely be following this a lot. So um, you can find any and all updates uh, at the Tribune for me on this. Yeah, sltrib.com. Um, so uh, opponents of this bill are... are uh are saying that uh, one of the things you point out in the story, uh, the bill seems to say that um, a mining operation uh, can uh, be easier to, uh, to to then go to adjacent lands, even if you don't own that land mm-hmm. yet. Yes, that's a really interesting part of the bill as well. It talks about kind of contiguous um, land, basically, if you own some land and um, the land, you know, adjacent to your parcel um, has no owner, but you have, you own some land and you have a vested mining right on your land, you can expand your mining operations to contiguous properties. And that's a really, um, had a, a lot of people I talked to were concerned about that just because, you know, where does that where does that end? Where does that lead us? And how many um, kind of where could that go? Right? Like, what's the what's the if we carry that thought out? You know, is there any restriction on mining on any land that isn't you know owned or hasn't um, or and especially like combined with the fact that this bill would make it a lot harder, if not you know nearly impossible for local governments to regulate mining operations in you know their jurisdictions. So yeah, I think that was a really big kind of. Um, takeaway for me about what from the people that I spoke to who are really concerned about this bill about kind of, you know, just where is this going to go? What does this open the door to? So proponents of the bill and this mining company say that uh, aggregate is needed uh, for construction and especially local source of aggregate. So you don't have to bring it in. What, uh, what is aggregate? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, it is basically gravel, sand, a lot of the things that you need for construction. Um, and it's no secret that Salt Lake City has really been growing, that Utah has really been growing over the last couple of years. And proponents of this bill, um, Senator Hinkins, in a meeting at, um, at, at the interim session, actually you know, pointed out, I think, this idea of aggregates being produced, you know, out of state. So Utah and Salt Lake City specifically just, you know, if we're talking about along the Wasatch Front where, you know, two-thirds of Utah's population lives and where a lot of growth is happening, that the aggregates, you know, the gravel and sand for those construction operations are coming from out of state or coming from Utah's more rural areas. And Senator Hinkins um, said that he kind of pointed out that it is a little unfair to put the burden of producing these aggregates um, on more rural communities and then, you know, chucking them up to Salt Lake City. You know, those rural communities are not seeing the benefits of their construction. 
Um, or, you know, if we're checking those uh, aggregates from out of state, you know, that's more emissions. That's another thing that Granite Construction, which is the company that would be operating the mine uh, that's proposed in Parley's Canyon, uh, the one that a lot of people are concerned about um, that I spoke to about this bill. Um, so that's kind of an interesting argument there about kind of where should the Wasatch Front be getting its construction materials. Um, but I think it's also important to note that, you know, say that this bill, or sorry, that this mine was greenlit. Um, even if it was, there's nothing that, you know, necessarily says that the gravel, you know, mines there couldn't be sent to Montana or Colorado or anywhere else. Um, so I think that's also an interesting thing to consider. I just want to read this line from your story. Um, Mensch talked about Dr. Mensch said that if SB 172 is passed and the I-80 South Quarry is approved, Quote, the east side of uh, Salt Lake Valley is going to have a dried up Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake, right in their backyard, end quote. What, what's he talking about there? So he was referring to dust pollution, um, which uh, if you've read some Salt Lake Tribune coverage about the Great Salt Lake um, shrinking and you know, these kind of dried portions blowing really toxic dust um, over um, Utah and its you know neighboring states. And that's a really big public health concern um, about what that dust contains and what it kind of means for both our air quality and our public health. And he argues, um, Dr. Mitchell argued or told me that like this, this proposed quarry in Parley's Canyon, which, um, you know, some people refer to, it's also referred to as the I-80 South Quarry, um, would basically become just a, another Great Salt Lake, another as big of a danger to air quality and public health as the Great Salt Lake is. Um, and he's saying that that's going to be because of dust. Um, there's a lot of dust that's required when you are um, trying to get gravel, um, when you're producing gravel, um, and dust suppression, uh, you know, the attempts to actually keep that dust under control. Basically, the way you do that is water. You put water on the on the dust, and you and that's kind of how it suppresses it. Um, no one will be um, no one will be shocked to hear that we are still in a drought, and that where we would get enough water to um, make that dust suppression possible is kind of up in the air, um, especially because Salt Lake City residents get about 20% of their water from Parley's um, Creek, the Parley's Creek watershed. That's another concern. Um, But yeah, when he kind of talked about, you know, having a great Salt Lake in the backyard, he's basically just saying all of this fugitive dust, these emissions um, from, you know, diesel, um, these diesel exhaust emissions that would be coming from trucks that would have to go up and down um, from the quarry elsewhere um, would really increase air pollution and really be a big danger to public health. And finally, this uh, particular debate, this this particular bill uh, fits into the the age-old uh, um, controversy or debate, um, who should have the final control, the, you know, the state lawmakers or local governments and state agencies? Uh, and this bill definitely would, would uh, shift that in favor of the state lawmakers, right? It really would. Um, I think a really interesting part of this bill is that, yes, it does, it names, you know, local governments um, and restricts them from, um, I can read a quote from the bill here, from enacting a local law ordinance or regulation that would unreasonably restrict critical infrastructure materials or mining operations. Um, but they also say that for state agencies. So that could include, you know, the Utah Department of Environmental Quality, the Utah Division of Oil, Gas and Mining. You know, there's a lot of um, state agencies who do a lot of work with mining throughout the state, and they would also, um, or their ability to enact, you know, to, to regulate mines across the state would be significantly restricted by this le- by this legislation. And it seems like um, the people who would be in charge of 
actually being able to make, you know, regulate mining would be state lawmakers. Um, so that is definitely a big part of this. And I think that's why there is a lot of um, opposition to this bill um, from, you know, actually as well as, you know, Salt Lake County, um, it will be no surprise, <laughs> Salt Lake County did vote to unanimously um, oppose SB 172, but so have a lot of other counties across the state. Um, and yeah, it just kind of shows that these local governments really do care about, you know, the mining operations that are opening up in their backyards and they want to be able to regulate them and um, the way that they think, the ways that they think are most appropriate. Uh, so I just want to spend a, a couple minutes uh, here at the end um, talking about another uh, story you had. Uh, the headline is, Did Utah's Mighty Five Ad Work Too Well? <laughs> you you uh, talked with Vicki Varela, who's uh, outgoing uh, managing director of the Office of Tourism. And uh, she was instrumental with this the, this Mighty Five ad campaign. She one of the quotes says she uh, she says I take credit and I take blame <laughs> for this for this ad campaign. Yes, yeah, um, it was really great to speak with Vicky Varela. She has been the managing director of the Utah Office of Tourism for over a decade now, and she just retired last week. So um, she was, as you said, instrumental in the launching of the Mighty Five campaign. Um, I uh, one of my favorite parts of the story is there's a there's a cool photo of a Mighty Five, you know, Utah's Mighty Five National Parks, um, an ad for that in Los Angeles um, in 2013, and just showing how basically um, the Utah Office of Tourism really got the word out about Utah's national parks um, and. I think that there are a lot of people who think that that's a really cool thing. Um, there's been a, a there's been a lot more visitation to Utah's national parks from both domestic and international um, visitors. There's been a lot of economic opportunity from that. Um, a lot of money made in local communities, the local and rural communities who are nearby these parks. But there's also a lot of people who say, "Hey, this has been maybe a little bit too much. Um, this is a lot of visitation, um, and there's a lot of people coming through." And maybe the national parks and these rural, local, smaller communities weren't prepared for that. Um, and when I was talking to Varela and her successor, who is Natalie Randall, um, who used to work in San Juan County, um, they, they both kind of said, you know, we're not just trying to turn on the faucet of visitation and just kind of get as many people into Utah as possible. They also really um, have expressed a desire to focus on making sure that people who actually live in Utah residents um, can take advantage of Utah's, you know, outdoor resources and um, do manage visitation in a more sustainable way. So it was a really interesting conversation um, to have with both of them. Check that story out as well at sltrib.com. We've been talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune Open Lands reporter Anastasia Huffam. Uh, Anastasia, thanks so much. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. Hope you'll join me again next time. Thanks for listening.